Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and thanks for tuning in for our 66th video cast and 56th podcast for the week ending January 22nd, 2021. So as usual, we'll kick off with our media, cover a lot of information in a short period of time, and move forward from there. So first off, I'd like to thank Jackie D'Ambrosi Scales and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown uh, earlier this week on Monday. And the market was closed, so we talked about uh, China overnight had uh, positive GDP. It was the only developed country to have positive GDP for 2020 plus 2.3%. That was largely due to the fact that they were first in first out. They had the first cases three months before we did. We've lagged all the economic data on a three month lag basis. And the risk moving forward though for China, their debt's now at 266% uh, debt to GDP, headed to 275% this year. That compares to the US, which is at uh, just over 120 and also going higher uh, based on the some of the uh, packages in the hopper. Uh, so the Chinese government's decided to pull back on their record, record stem, stimulus spending. They were deficit spending at a pace of 36 percent of GDP. They're going to pull that back to 3.0. Uh, however, that should be offset by the new stimulus packages coming in. We've just passed the 900 billion and now there's 1.9 trillion on the table that's being negotiated. So, um, and their consumer has lagged a little bit. So they, they do need to see that consumer start to pick up. Retail sales were down 3.9% for the year, uh, which certainly makes sense. But, uh, you know, their stimulus has been focused on restarting factories and uh, ours has been focused pretty, pretty much on direct payments to consumers in large part. So uh, that's why we're seeing uh, some strength in, in, on the consumer side and that should continue. So the um, key thing coming out here is, uh, Liz was asking, what am I watching? What am I uh, very focused on in the US markets? And the answer was the US dollar. And this, the dollar has unequivocally been in a downtrend. However, uh, of late, going particularly going into what was the Yellen confirmation meetings uh, earlier this week, uh, hedge funds were at a record short in the U.S. dollar futures uh, relative to commercials, which have been buying the U.S. dollar in recent weeks. Uh, newsflash, the commercials are often right uh, and the hedge funds are often wrong, particularly when they get to such an extreme in positioning. So if, in fact, the commercials do turn out to be right in coming weeks and we do see a short-term bounce in the dollar, that's going to have implications. It could be a short-term headwind for stocks, a short-term headwind for commodities, which are denominated in U.S. dollars in which case the sectors that would do well in the short term, again, this is a counter trend move, short term bounce, uh, would be consumer staples, potentially utilities, potentially bonds could get a, a bid if we see yields compress and if yields compress the tech will be back in play for for the coming weeks. But again, this to me uh, looks like a short term counter trend in a longer term uh, cyclical reopening trade that's going to be multi-years, commodity trade, multi-years, 
dollar weakening uh, probably for some time. So for most people, what we see over the next few weeks, and we're going to get into it in granularity in this uh, podcast video cast, is largely to be ignored. But if you are a short-term player, then these are some things you can pay attention to and you can get in and out of. Um, uh, but we just want to kind of always try to take a few steps back to give you the bigger picture so you don't get distracted and offset because even if you get the fact right that there will be some weakness in the market you know often people go people go to cash and they try to make binary decisions and the market winds up rallying another seven percent before correcting nine percent and your net you know basically got nowhere so you don't want to get too cute particularly when you're in a brand new business cycle that's just getting started but but i've got my key point and my key eye is on that dollar. If it bounces, you know, we, we did get some exposure this week to consumer staples, a few names that have been uh, really beaten down that we think could bounce here. But really, all we're doing is biding time, waiting for weakness so we can add more cyclicals for the next, you know, one to three plus years. Cyclicals outperform the first eight quarters of a new business cycle. So we want to get, you know, any weakness, we want to add a little exposure to banks, although we've got plenty of exposure there as we've been building that position for the last uh, six months. So uh, so we're doing great there. But we would we would consider adding a little bit, certainly uh, would consider adding a little bit in energy. And I think the best bang for your buck, if you've missed a lot of the move that we've been talking about since uh, April of last year and over the summer of this year, is probably defense and aerospace is still really reasonably valued and that would be a great opportunity in coming weeks if we do see some short-term headwinds in the market or at least in those groups to be adding for the long term so um, thanks again to liz and jackie for having me on monday uh next was um yesterday morning at 4 30 a.m which is 4 30 p.m indonesia time so i was up uh, pretty early with a three handle on it I was on CNBC Indonesia and they wanted to talk about the inauguration and the new policies and the new administration. So uh, I'll have that video on Monday. They, they didn't get it to me yet. But um, Maria Katarina, thank you. And the producer, Yolaiwan Haryana, for having me on CNBC Indonesia uh, for uh, pretty much the full half hour of Closing Bell. And the key things that we talked about was, were the executive orders in the first 24 hours. Um, they put an uh, end to the Muslim travel ban. They um, extended the eviction moratorium to March 31st. They delayed interest on student loans to September 30th. They made mass mandatory on federal properties. They rejoined the W8 World Health Organization. They rejoined the Paris Climate Accords. We'll talk about the implications on energy stocks uh, in this call. They stopped border wall construction. They uh, included undocumented immigrants in the census count again. And they canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, which we'll, which we'll cover today. Um, also, obviously, the proposal of the, the $1.9 trillion spending bridge with the American Rescue Plan that's on top of the $900 billion that we just approved, uh, along with uh, an initiative to get 100 million vaccines done uh, within the first 100 days. That will include 
$1,400 checks to individuals and their dependents. That's on top of the 600 that already went out. This is to uh, middle and lower income households. The child tax credit to go up to 3,600 for children under age six and uh, 3,000 for under age five. Earned income tax credit triples to $1,500. The unemployment supplement uh, goes from 300 a week to 400 a week. So uh, I think for some states, their unemployment is as high as $400 a week. So if you add the federal, that's $800 a week. That's $3,200 a month uh, not working. And that's now going to be extended to September if the package goes through as proposed. So, uh, you know, $3,600, uh, 2 times 12... So you're looking at $38,000 a year run rate uh, for people that are unemployed through September. Uh, proposal to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour and then $350 billion uh, uh, to state and local governments. Uh, that was part of the uh, bailout package that was uh, so hotly contested in the last administration now looks like it will go through um, in some shape or form because uh, it's a blue wave. So that's that's what happens. And um, next, um, the other thing to consider about the blue wave is some historical statistics I covered with Maria. Uh, since 1948, uh, the S&P 500 averages 14, 14% per year in a uh, blue wave, which is uh, Democratic president, Senate, and House. And the Dow Jones actually uh, does better at 15.7%, which is interesting because the Dow Jones is industrials and cyclicals, a lot of... A lot of uh, uh, cyclical type stocks weight, which is what we've been talking about, which fits right into the narrative that they could outperform, which which would uh, uh, forward the thesis. So the early winners have been uh, small caps, clean tech, cyclicals, value. Uh, banks, energy, industrials have obviously outperformed the last few months since the election. Uh, and the yield curve's gotten steeper and um, higher yields is sniffing out uh, inflation coming. The weaker dollar is sniffing out inflation, uh, all from the deficit spending uh, moving forward. The other proposal that Biden has put out is a $15,000 first-time homebuyer tax credit that can be used for down payment assistance, which should be a boon to the housing markets, which are already hot as hot as we've ever seen them. Uh, there's only 2.3 months of inventory nationwide. Uh, here in Connecticut, uh, I was talking to a friend who's in the business. It's just over a month in our, in our local area. Uh, and uh, the floodgates of immigration are going to be opening, which is going to also help home builders, um, which is very, very positive for that sector. And um, as far as tech goes, I, I said to Maria, you know, I, I don't think the Section 230 debates go away. I think it's evident to everyone in recent weeks that uh, these large platforms are 100% publishers at this point. And then the question is, what responsibility, what new responsibilities will they bear moving forward related to that? The antitrust case don't go away. And the EU digital service tax, which is looking to confiscate 6 to 10% of revenues or as much as 6 to 10% of revenues from our big tech companies uh, will also be there. There's no way the U.S. is going to allow them to take that much money off of our companies without getting their share first. Uh, so I think it's just going to be a constant 
push pull for uh you know, either give us more money or we're going to regulate you more or both uh, could certainly be both. And, um, you know, and so that'll run in fits and starts. Earnings will be, continue to be great because they have a moat. And uh, I, I think next week we'll see that earnings are relatively strong. Uh, but the government will say, well, look at all that money that, that you're making. We want some. We need it now with all the deficits. And they'll find a way to get it. So uh, that's uh, both European governments and the U.S. governments in terms of that theme. The tone of the new administration, Maria was asking, uh, certainly uh, should be more predictable on domestic policy. I mean, basically, um, what you're seeing here is everything that they promised in the campaign they're delivering. We are going to get higher taxes. We are going to get more spending. Um, and uh, and that's what, what the people voted for, and that's what we're going to get. So... Uh, second thing you're going to see is smoother trade with China. I think they're going to go much easier despite the, the media coverage saying that they'll be tough on China. I think they're actually going to be tough on the human rights side of what China is doing and uh, easier on trade. So it should be good for emerging markets. It should be good for uh, China in terms of trade, in terms of their economy. And maybe you will see sanctions and some tough movement as it relates to human rights issues, uh, which which is a positive thing. Um the risks to all of the uh, spending that's going to be coming in and the stimulus and uh, and some of the headway that we're making with uh, vaccinations is going to be the increase of the corporate tax rate uh, to 39. Uh, to, I'm sorry, to the top rate for individuals up to back to, to 39.6. The other risk they want to try to change dividend income to ordinary income. That could have a, a negative uh, headwind for stocks and uh, corporate tax increasing from 21 to 28. They have said now they're going to push ahead with that and they need to if they want to get that done. They need to do it before the midterms because the um, the balance in the House is pretty tight and certainly in the in the. Uh, Senate is tight, so if they want to push through the progressive policies, they need to do so in a rush. That's the bad news. The good news is that uh, on average, it takes 15 months to pass a sweeping tax change, and uh, and it will it will be hard to do so uh, with uh, basically a split Senate. So uh, the hope and, and why the market is still buoyant in spite of um, an acknowledgement that, that higher taxes are coming is one, it's 15 months down the road and two, you'll get trillions of additional spending beforehand and the hope and expectation right now is that uh, that will offset the $20 of earnings that we're going to lose from the S&P 500. Now, if, if you look at 2022 earnings, close to 200 bucks per share for the S&P 500, I think it's uh, 190, uh, let's see, I have 198 or let's see, yeah, uh, 196 for 2022, 168 for 2021. You take $20 off, that's serious. I mean, you take Take 2022 down to 176. You know you're trading at a you know almost a mid 20s forward multiple. Uh, that's unsustainable, particularly if uh, rates keep going up. If your discount rates gets higher, uh, that becomes a serious problem. Certainly, short rates are going to stay pinned, so that's helpful. But um, so the question is, what uh, impact? is the additional multi-trillions of dollars going to have 
to actually take earnings up before you shave off 20 or $30, if in fact that's what it gets to. And it may not get to because there's such a narrow uh, um, uh, control in the Senate. So the worst case, certainly it's going to take longer and it's probably going to be less uh, deleterious on earnings and on the outlook by the time it finally gets done. But we do know we're going to get even more stimulus in the short term, whether it's $1.9 trillion or $1.1 trillion or, or less. You add that to the $900 uh, billion and the 2.3 that's in. As a matter of fact, one of the things I covered with Maria was let's add it up. You know, 2.3 trillion on the CARES Act, uh, half a half a billion on the most recent. The reason I say half a billion instead of 900 billion is because 400 million was pushed forward that was unused from the 2.3. So you're at uh, 2.8 and then you add 1.9 is proposed. Uh, and then on top of that, so that uh, takes you up to 4.7. And then uh, after the 1.9, they have a package for uh, climate and infrastructure, which is another $2 trillion. So all in, if they get everything that, that, that is proposed, you'd have $6.7 trillion spent related to quote-unquote COVID costs. Uh, and basically, you've had a Fed balance sheet expansion of about $3.3 trillion. So you're at $10 trillion, give or take 50% of GDP of spending and support. And what is that to solve? We had it, basically, we lost 3.5% of GDP in 2020, which is about $750 billion, give or take. So we're, we're putting $10 trillion to solve a $750 billion problem. Um, the reason that it feels like it makes sense to keep throwing more money at the problem is because while we're locked up, that money is not yet circulating. So velocity has been very, very low. So we really, we have no idea what the impact of this stimulus is gonna be. I was talking five or 6% GDP growth in August. People thought I was crazy. That may be very low. And certainly $168 of earnings in 2021 and 196 in 2022 may be extremely low. You know, they started the quarter at negative 9% for Q4 2020. It could wind up, by the time earnings season is over, it could wind up flat. Could you imagine flat from 2019 to 2020 with all that we've been through in terms of earnings? So the pent-up demand is there. Um, and and so, so these are the upside uh, risks, the downside risks. And then as far as the $2 trillion uh, infrastructure package that they want after the $1.9 trillion is um, uh, an expectation of zero carbon from the power grid by 2035, rebuild roads, bridges, and infrastructure, which by the way, makes a ton of sense. And I think everyone is behind because that's money you spend and you actually get a long-term return on investment, you know, just giving out money and particularly money to a lot of people that still have jobs, which is, you know, a mistake. I, un I understood in the CARES package, they just need to get it out quick because we were in a crisis. But now with a million vaccinations going out the la uh, a day for the last week or so, uh, we're going to be at 100 million. We were on that run rate before the inauguration. We're going to certainly get there uh, with all the uh, additional programs that they're going to put in place to, to make sure that happens. Um, you're seeing the case curve roll over now and the hospitalizations and the deaths start to roll over because you're taking 
one side of the equation down, they're running out of host with all the people getting vaccinated. And that's just going to that's going to just grow parabolically because more and more people will be vaccinated and the host will have less and less hosts. And it, it, it's just going to collapse. It, basically, I think by April or May, people are going to be surprised. It's going to look like China's did it in the last few months where you'd have a few hundred cases pop up here and there and, you know, they take care of it right away. But we got to keep the pedal to the metal and make sure we get those hundred million vaccinations done. And they're they're fully focused on that. And I think that's going to be really, really positive for the economy. Um, so the roads, bridge and infrastructure, uh, natural gas is obviously going to be a key fuel source here in the transition. Solar and wind uh, ban on fracking on federal land. They, they started that already this week. Uh, goal is to cut emissions in half by 2030. Uh, they wanted, they floated a cash for clunkers program like you saw after the great financial crisis. It'll be to turn in for EV uh, cars, which will help that industry. And then 500,000 charging stations in the United States is part of the proposal. So that'll cost another $2 trillion. So basically, um, again, close to $7 trillion of spending. $3 trillion from the Fed of support to solve basically what was a $785 billion GDP deficit. Um, so there's going to be a lot of money in the system, and you're going to see assets continue to climb in coming years uh, and inflation. And then you add the $15 minimum wage. That wage inflation is going to be sticky, and you'll see rents go up. You'll see, and, and now cutting off supply for the energy sector, you're going to see energy prices start to fly. Although uh, some of that's being offset already, we're seeing Iran uh, exporting now with the new administration and cranking up their production in anticipation of getting a new deal with the new administration. So the tens of thousands of jobs that are lost in the U.S. oil patch will largely be picked up by Iran if they do the new type of deal and enable them to produce moving forward. So bad for Texas, good for Iran. Um, so, uh, however, the net effect, if you're exposed to the energy sector, is that uh, there will be, on balance, less production. Uh, we will under this uh, trajectory, start to be net importers of Middle East oil again, and uh, they will no longer have to um, cut production uh, the way that they had to over COVID, and they'll be able to, uh, OPEC will regain its power in terms of pricing power and, and being uh, able to uh, name their price once we've shut in uh, as, uh, you know, uh, federal land leases are, you know, up to 30 to 40 percent of production for the small frackers. So um, as the as they go bankrupt, the big companies, the integrateds will get bigger and mint money and uh, do tremendously well. And that's where we've been focused. Smaller companies will go bankrupt. Iran will benefit. Uh, OPEC will benefit. And then uh, it will also help the, the transition for, uh, to clean energy because effectively what we'll see two to four years out is, you know, as, as I've been talking about, three, four, five dollars at the pump, 70 to 80 dollars a barrel. And that will make it economic for people to say, yeah, the EVs are maybe a little bit more expensive, but now it's becoming too expensive to fill up my uh, combustible engine, and therefore I'm going to switch over to an electric vehicle. You couple that with uh, potentially a cash for clunkers program, and um, 
government subsidies to switch over and uh, that will accelerate that so you know you might take up evs up to 10 percent of the uh auto inventory by 2030 2035 under that type of scenario but in the interim everyone with combustible engines will uh will pay dearly in coming years at the pump uh based on on this new transition plan and um shutting in all of all of uh the well our underground wealth in the united states so so that's uh that's basically the plan there and uh so thank you to maria and to yolaiwan moving forward i want to thank um devic jane and meta singh and they were asking me about the market i think this was on tuesday regarding janet yellen and i said janet Yellen is saying rates are low. Let's do a huge stimulus to come out of this and recover strong. And the market likes that so far. The overriding theme for the next 24 hours is big stimulus, big packages, big recovery going into the inauguration. And the market certainly loves that in the short term and will pay the piper uh, later down the road. But uh, with the growth levels that we're going to see and the borrowing costs, she does make a compelling case. And uh, the key is they've got to get it done soon because uh with the cases starting to come down quickly with earnings improving materially it's going to be harder and harder to make the case if they want another basically four trillion dollars to get it as the economy continues to recover so uh, president biden was out today talking about the dire urgency of getting it done um and uh, janet yellen was out this week talking about the dire urgency go big uh, so if they can get something done in the next few weeks, they'll get it in, but we're going to see continued economic improvement and it's going to get better and better and better. The other thing that's happening that's also going to improve the economic numbers in the short term is that many of the states that were closed down, now that they're getting the $350 billion, they're starting to open up. Uh, so we're going to see this unleashed GDP that's just basically been shut in the dark for the last you know, four or five months during this wrangling period, just unleashed and a torrent of growth and a torrent of GDP. And again, the most important thing, which this, this new administration has right, uh, is is get as many people vaccinated as quickly as humanly possible. That's the greatest economic stimulus we could possibly have. So let's just keep uh, supporting uh, the administration in that way and uh, all going out and getting the vaccines as soon as we're able to because that'll do more than trillions of dollars of stimulus because uh, uh, the amount of personal savings and the amount of pent-up demand is staggering. So thanks to Devic and Meta for including me in their article. I also want to thank this uh uh, feedspot.com they have this list of tw top 25 hedge fund podcasts you must follow in 2021 my wife actually sent me the link i was pretty blown away last updated january 15 2021 and they listed them uh and they listed us number four hedge fund tips with tom hayes number four out of 25 uh hedge fund podcasts you must follow in 2021 so i was flattered Thanks to the people over at feedspot.com. You can check that out. Uh, moving right along to pent-up demand, Planet Money NPR had a great piece on what 1919 teaches us about pent-up demand. And they talked about uh, Babe Ruth, who actually got the Spanish flu both in the first wave and the second wave. He got it twice. But in the once it was over, he broke the American League record for home runs in a single season in the year that followed the virus. Uh, they talk about baseball ticket sales 
in the following year. It basically uh, went through the roof from uh, 2.8 million in 1918 to 6.5 million in 1919. And they tie it to uh, the CEO of JetBlue saying pent up demand for uh, for travel is going to help his company soar back to profitability. Marriott saying the same thing. And, um, you know, the, the polls that they cite here, the Harris poll, say 71% of Americans want to go back to restaurants and socializing at the bars and shopping outside and movie theaters, etc. It's going to be a huge boom. The other thing that they uh, noted beyond the resurgence of, uh, by the way, a ton of babies, uh, Norway experienced a baby boom once they recovered. Uh, beyond babies and baseball, researchers, researchers credited the end of the Spanish flu with a speculative orgy, as they put it, that helped produce a boom in 1919. And uh, now financial pundits predict that a pent-up demand could feed a bull market this year. Um, so the research report that was put out that supported the article from, or was referenced in the NPR note was uh, a report by a Journal of Infectious Diseases and Therapy, uh, RCK Burdekin, Robert Day School of Economics, Claremont McKenna. And he basically says that uh, the U.S. output effects of the Spanish flu appeared to be only transitory in nature and primarily reflected the negative labor supply shock. Um, now, to, to, to pent up demand that after the pandemic came to an end, this is very, very important. This line stood out for me. Rising bank loans financed a speculative orgy of 1919. Such bank loans add to the amount of money in circulation, in turn fueling inflation insofar as too much money ends up chasing too few goods. So, you know, if you look at one of the charts we're going to show is inflation break-evens in the, in the podcast video cast today. Uh, you know, keep in mind here that the acceleration in both U.S. money supply and price increases through most of 1919 followed a slackening around the time of the second wave. Uh, although notable reacceler. Okay, so it is notable that the reacceleration in the money and price growth uh, was delayed until March 1919, uh, despite a number of cities removing their restrictions in October or November, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was regional, but. That's the key thing that we've got to keep our eyes on. We're going to get wage inflation. That's clear. That started before the talk of $15 just because uh, they had to pay people more for safety considerations. People demanded more to take the risk. And they were competing with the federal government. If you remember, unemployment you know, in, in states is, can be up to 400 bucks, And then you had 300 from the Fed. So that's uh, 700, 2,800 bucks a month, you know, four and a half weeks. It's more than that, over 3,000 a month. So you're looking now with it's going to increase more close to a 40,000 a year run rate not working. Um, and pent up demand is going to come back. Savings are back. Employers are going to have to pay hand over fist to compete with the government to get the amount of people required you think about all the people that are not in restaurants not in movie theaters not in stores that now the demand is going to be a fire hose to restaurant stores airplanes etc they're going to probably i, I think this 15 15 story is going to be moot because they're going to have to pay people a lot more just to match what the government's paying them not to work and um 
so we're going to see that wage inflation. We're going to see a lot of money chasing uh, less goods in the short term, and um, and that should be good for earnings in the short term. So uh, that's that. Uh, Phil Flynn put out uh, some of this concept in the regarding the uh, moves by the new administration on the oil industry. Um, and he basically laid out the case that Iran would be the direct beneficiary of um, cutting the leases on federal lands and uh, tens of thousands of U.S. jobs will be lost. Uh, uh, Iran will be the immediate beneficiary of that as they work out uh, the new deal. And we're already seeing them start to uh, export and ramp up production in anticipation of, of uh, their talks with the new administration. So uh, as far as tech goes, moving right along, uh, you know, we've covered this. There's no way of getting around this. They're going to have to still, you know, the antitrust cases are still there. Earnings will be good in the next week. They'll probably run here because the market's kind of taking a breather, consolidating huge gains in the last few months, in which case yields would compress, the dollar would probably get a bounce, and groups like consumer staples, utilities, and tech, when yields compress, uh, tech will get a bounce and should should be a bounce uh, based on that. But I think what we try to do is take a step back and look at the climate. The climate is you got governments around the world trying to reach into their pockets under the guise of increased regulation. Of, of course, they need to be regulated. There are clear monopolistic tendencies of some of these platforms, uh, but it will be a quid pro quo. Uh, either you give us more money or the regulations are going to put you out of business and there'll be some middle ground. The government gets more money. The, the tech companies get more regulation. Hopefully the consumer still gets equivalent value and uh, there'll be uh, higher barriers of entry for startups, which will effectively give these companies a, a greater moat than they have right now because new companies won't be able to comply with the new regulations. So that's uh, the unintended consequences moving forward. Leaving that aside, though, seasonally, Equity Clock put out this seasonal chart of the tech sector. This is, we are moving into the weakest seasonal time of the year for the sector. I don't know that that's going to matter if they have good earnings, but it's just something to keep in the back of your mind that, um, you know, if we do get a pop in earnings and, and yields have compressed, which favors tech in the short term, it may be an opportunity to uh, lay some off. Obviously, they've they've been compressed you know, tech has underperformed dramatically since September, uh, since late summer, relative to cyclicals. Uh, so if you do get a huge bounce on earnings, it might be time to lighten up uh, from a seasonal factor and from the other headwinds moving forward. Uh, oils, hired hands. Okay, moving into the, the sector, oils, hired hands see spending recovery everywhere but home. So this is in line with what we're talking about. Schlumberger posted better than expected earnings today, forecasted an increase in overseas spending by customers in the next quarter. Halliburton said the basic same thing and Baker Hughes. These are all servicing companies, uh, oil services companies. And they're actually, um, we believe this sets the stage for oil demand to recover to 2019 levels no later than 2023, said Schlumberger Chief Executive Olivier Lepouche. Uh, absent a setback in the these macro assumptions, this will translate to meaningful activity increases in both North, North America and internationally. 
Uh, it's looking like that's going to be much sooner, uh, was said in a couple other earnings calls. As a matter of fact, uh, their earnings, they were basically three quarters ahead of guidance uh, in their December earnings. I think it was I think it was Schlumberger. It was one of these servicers. So um, we're starting to see that, and you're looking at the rig counts hitting record lows here. They're going to start to pick up as well. Um, this is this Occidental article in the Financial Times. The headline, and this is by Miles McCormick. The headline is Occidental claims green push does more than Tesla. CEO Vicky Holub says oil group pumps more CO2 into the ground than car maker prevents be being omitted on the roads. So this is the narrative that's going to start to evolve from the big players that are left after you get the washout of, you know, the low end 20% will continue to go bankrupt. The bigger players will get bigger and mint money. And they're going to do it in the context of a narrative that allows pension funds who've missed the first 50% move in a lot of these stocks to start to get back into these stocks once they're up 100% uh, on the basis that they're now capturing carbon capture CO2, pumping CO2 back into the ground, promising to be zero net, uh, net neutral emissions over the next few decades. Uh, and you're going to see more of this. So Occidental's the first out of the gate making these claims, saying that they're more um, environmentally friendly than Tesla. And uh, and the, the more they can weave this narrative, the more institutional money can get back in. And they'll probably be getting back in after many of these companies are up 100%. And they'll probably still make money from those levels over the next three to five years with uh, Brent going to be probably 75 to $85, WTI at 75 to 80 as all the uh, domestic supply is capped up by the new administration and uh, won't be offset by uh, Iran's increasing production. production. So by 2050, Occidental says the volume of emissions it replaces will equal those it creates. And it's the only significant U.S. oil producer with a target to cut emissions to net zero, both from its own operations and those of its customers. So that is a tall claim. You can be sure that their competitors are now going to start to come out with their same narratives and their same plans for carbon capture, CO2 pumping into the ground. Uh, which actually helps them, uh, makes it easier for them to draw more uh, fossil fuels. Uh, but that's another story. And um, and then money will flow back in and we'll see the sector go from 2% of the S&P 500 up to 4%, up to 6%. I don't know if it'll ever get back to 10%, but it's possible. And then all the managers that said that we don't want anything to do with it will be below their benchmarks and they'll be forced in at the wrong time. So this is the beginning of it. It's going to come in fits and starts, but, but this article was critical and it was in the Financial Times written by Miles McCormick. Uh, and that was that. Tesla had no comment, by the way. So Bank of America, moving on to banks, uh, profits jump as it releases $828 million of reserves. This has been part of our narrative since we were on CNBC London in July talking about it, and they, they looked at me you know, like I was had three heads saying that bank earnings were going to be great as they released credit reserves, and that's exactly what's happening right now, and it's just the beginning. So these, these this group is still tremendously undervalued. Uh, as we saw in the ETF this month, set a record flows of 3.6 billion so far in January into the financial uh, sector, uh, financial select sector 
ETF, which is XLE. This is have already exceeded every full month total since November 2016. What did we say about that? Opinion follows trend. So now everyone's getting in just as you get all the late money. What do they do? They take a breather to flush out the weak sisters. That'll be over the next few weeks. It'll probably go sideways before we take a new leg higher and continue the uptrend. Uh, and this is a huge, huge secular opportunity. Uh, cycl well, cyclical opportunity. They outperform the first eight quarters. I think secular in terms of the amount of housing demand, loan demand, uh, everything that's going to happen, the investment in digital in the case of Wells Fargo, which is our top holding in the sector, which is was up 70% in the last 10 weeks going into earnings. It's taken off uh, 7 or 8% since. Um, you know, they're investing in tech. They're, they're going to close non-productive branches. The yield curve steepening. They have a moat. Same thing with JP Morgan. Same thing with Bank of America. So there's going to be plenty to go around as the demand for housing continues, as you know, CNI comes back in a major way, as we come out of this um, recession and thing and uh, and companies start to invest again. They're going to be great. You know, people talk, well, what about PayPal? Well, PayPal is not doing $400 million senior loans to, uh, you know, Chipotle. Uh, so, you know, certainly on the retail side, there's plenty to go around and, and they'll compete. They'll compete for it. But they have a moat. They know what they're doing. A guy like Charlie Scharf and his background uh, in payments, uh, they're not going to just sit idly by and, uh, and, and lose their business. So this is a great opportunity and it's just getting started. Um, so Yellen was out talking, act big now to save the economy, worry about the debt later, uh, interest costs are low, and they're gonna follow her advice. Um, Republicans are already pushing back. Uh, that'll just be a part of a negotiation, but they, they, they don't have that much power, they lost. So, um, you know, when you lose, elections have consequences, and uh, so, so now we're gonna try uh, a different tact. And um, I think based on everything that's set up, it's going to succeed no matter how it goes at this point, because, uh, you know, the pent up demands there, the money's in the system, the stage is set, and um, uh, it, it's going to be a, a good few years for sure. So, um, and this this uh, data from more than 56.7 million Doses have been given now of the vaccine, uh, which is amazing. Globally, U.S. has administered 18.4 million doses. Where we um, last week we averaged 939, 973 doses per day. So just under a million average. We hit over a million last week. Uh, we're going to hit over, we're probably going to be at a much faster run rate. As you can see now, the seven-day moving average of the cases and the deaths is just rolling over. I think that's going to start to plummet in coming weeks because uh, Sarah Eisen put out, CDC just announced 39 million doses of COVID vaccine as of today, 37 million as of yesterday. So almost 2 million doses in the last 24 hours, which is just amazing, uh, which means President Biden's plan for 100 million doses in 100 days is realistic and should be the minimum. Absolutely. Uh, so that was Sarah Eisen at 3.13 p.m. So that's updated. So close to 2 million a day now. That's huge. Uh, you know, again, you're, you're affecting one side of the equation, less and less host. This is all good news. Moving right along, I actually want to cover a bunch of um, 
random charts here before we move ahead. Uh, okay, so this was the U.S. five-year break-even rate on inflation expectations is now at its highest level since 2012 going into 2013. Next one we have is... Let me just see if I can get this one down. Okay, this is the uh, performance of the most shorted stocks in the market. You can see they've been the best performers. There's a lot of energy in there, certainly a lot of banks and financials in there, but uh, you haven't seen this since the beginning of the last cycle, which was 2000, early 2009 uh, was the beginning of the last cycle. So we're, we have an even more of a boom than we had at the beginning of that cycle. Uh, next is we have, what's this? Uh, oh, bubbles. Okay. So this was, I don't know where this came from. So uh, if, I, well, the, the chart is from Deutsche Bank. So they get the full credit, Deutsche Bank, Bloomberg, and GFD Thompson EA. So I don't, I, I think this was from the Deutsche Bank report, but it's um, trough to peak price move within three years of the peak. So this is basically the move of Tulip Mania was the biggest ever bubble at 2,200% return. Then you had the Mississippi uh, the Mississippi thing in 1720. And the third one is Bitcoin, which was 998%. Uh, so what they're saying in the article, I think it was a Bloomberg article, was that uh, Bitcoin is only half of a tulip right now. Uh, although Bitcoins did start to roll over a little bit at the end of the week. It's bigger than what the South Sea bubble was, which was 900%. Uh, the tech wreck in 2000 was 475%. And FANG right now is only 200%. Uh, they're talking 2019 to today. I don't know if that's the right starting point. Oh, and Japanese equities in 1989. So their starting points are a little weird. But it's just saying that you know, some of these things are certainly frothy, and if they trade like tulips, they could go even longer before they collapse. But they're certainly uh, having characteristics of uh, of uh, historic booms that went to bust in that particular asset class. This was another thing that was in Market Watch. I think it was Steve Goldstein's article. Um, it was uh, showed spike in margin debt by WolfStreet.com. This is a little misleading because it's in dollar terms. So the, as the value, it should be in percentage terms to give an accurate read because as the value of the market, you know, if margin debt is up, what, from 300 billion to 750 billion, it looks like it's a lot, but the market is up many multiples of the multiples of margin. So margin as a percentage of market value might actually be at a constant, if not declining state, uh, you know, when you look at the absolute numbers um, that they're putting here. So, you know, in the dot-com bust, you had $300 billion of margin. Financial crisis, you had $400 billion. Now you have just under $800 billion, but the market's more than doubled since the, since the financial crisis. So, but look, there is a lot of margin. There's a lot of retail. There are pockets of froth. Just something to keep an eye on. thought it was worth bringing that up. 
uh, personal savings is also, <laughs> I guess, in a bubble. Uh, but that that's, that bubble is going to be deflated really, really quickly as uh, these vaccines go out. People are going to be spending like crazy. Total excess personal savings in the U.S. to reach $2 trillion by the end of February 2021. So you had the first stimulus and then it was spent down into December. Then you got the $600 checks. And with the... Uh, um, $1,400 checks they're anticipating uh, that it could go that high by February. Next you had, um, this it shows the uh, rush into junk bond yields are at their lowest rate in ever. Uh, basically the last time it was this low was 2013, 14 or even close. So people are paying a lot of money for the riskiest debt. That's probably a tomorrow story, but something to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, it may be setting up, setting the stage, probably not immediately, but, you know, six months out as some of the stimulus works its way through its system, through the system, et cetera, um, set up another scenario where you can buy credit default swaps really inexpensively on the riskiest junk that's been issued with the Fed backstop in the last six months and wind up making a ton of money like Bill Ackman did earlier the earlier in the year with uh, CMBS insurance. So keep an eye on that. I think this is setting up as a really interesting opportunity down the road, not immediately. There's still backstop there. There's still tons of money in the system, tons of liquidity. Uh, you'd just be paying premium to uh, to watch, but it is at an extreme. This is from Jury and Timmer, Timmer over at Fidelity. Uh, he showed the current stock market analog relative to the recovery of 2009. And I've actually referenced this, but it was nice to see it visually because I've said that, you know, you had a similar move off the March 2000 lows in 2009, and then you got major pullbacks in 2010 and 2011, and it didn't pay to play them or try to be cute trying to predict the next pullback because you would have missed out on, you know, a decade-long bull run, multiple hundreds of percent of your money, and it's the same thing. So here he's showing that we're, you know, kind of in terms of time and percentages lining up to a similar pullback that you saw in, um, you know, late 2009, early 2010, uh, which, you know, may in fact be the case. We'll see how that plays out. But it just goes to show early cycle. And your probably best bet is to just sit tight through all this. If you don't do this full time and it's not what you live, eat, and breathe, trying to play these short-term moves is, is going to cost you more than it's going to make you. Uh, certainly in, in taxes in some case, but even in terms of just not getting it uh, right. So ride it through. We're at the beginning of a new business cycle and uh, think about what you're going to sell you know, four or five years out, not today. Um, okay, moving forward. Um... Okay, this one was interesting. I always reference the uh, AAII bullish percent. A lot of people reference the bulls minus bears. This is the bulls minus bears. And what you're seeing is it's starting to roll over. It looks a little like it did before we had the you know uh, major correction in, in March of last year. 
uh, also did that in early 2019, the same type of thing before a pullback. So it's just something to keep an eye on. Nothing new here. We've been talking about this for the last two weeks that we expected some type of weakness in the first quarter. Uh, maybe we're starting to see it. We'll, we'll see. Again, I wouldn't go crazy trying to play it. Probably just suck it up and sit, sit through it. And then the last thing that uh, Ryan Dietrich over at LPL put out, I thought this was great. It shows um, the average single-day returns for the last 70 years. So you can look up by month and then look up by day. And as you can see, in January is a strong month. We know that seasonally there are not many red, red days. In February, though, you do see a lot of orange, a lot of negative days on average. That's seasonally the weak, weakest part of the best six months of the year. The best six months of the year are uh, November through uh, May. That's when the market does the best. And then June through October is kind of the market goes flat or net no returns. On average, again, this is. So in terms of the best six months of the year, February is the weakest of the best six months of the year. And that's another reason to potentially look for some uh, short-term sideways consolidation, if not a pullback. And we've been talking about that now, and we talked about it last week. Moving right along, Ryan also had some good data on a new president in year one uh, historically, stocks don't do as well during years one and two of a brand new president. The big gains come after midterm elections. So it shows here if it was a reelected president, we'd be uh, looking at closer to, te- you know, hot, closer to double digit returns. In the case of a new president, <clears throat> year one and two tend to be low single digits. Uh, we'll see how that pans out. There are other things that are pointing to mid teens that um, I think are probably closer we'll see what happens then he talks about the quarterly the first quarter of the first year after the election in the four-year cycle is one of the worst quarters of the entire four-year cycle with the negative two percent over the last 70 years so it's something else to keep an eye on and then this is what it looks like visually uh here's what the s p does with a new president in office the weakness after the inauguration into March is normal, so uh, so we could get this, you know, slight weakness. And by the way, this is an average of a two and a half to three percent drawdown. It looks huge, but it's it's really not. So uh, keep an eye on this, and we've been talking about that uh, last week. Here's another thing that I posted on Twitter, which was uh, I uh, Charlie Munger's Daily Journal Corp did their quarterly filing for their holdings. And I noted that he only had four stocks. Uh, His whole portfolio was 55% of Bank of America, 38% of Wells Fargo, 5% of U.S. Bank Corp, and uh, half a percent of POSCO. So effectively, um, you know, two stocks, Bank of America and Wells Fargo, basically made up 95, almost 95% of the portfolio, uh, 94% of the portfolio. And he certainly walks his own talk. He's been quoted saying, the idea of excessive diversification is madness. Wide diversification, which necessarily includes investment in mediocre businesses, only guarantees ordinary results, Charlie Munger. So uh, certainly walks his talk, and it's nice to see he's still in banks and Wells Fargo. And what's also notable is that people have been pointing to – 
you know, uh, Berkshire lightening up on banks and adding companies like Restoration Hardware and Snowflake and things that are not normally associated with how Warren Buffett invests, but he has to have a succession. So a lot of these moves that Berkshire's taking, people are thinking it's Warren and it's it's basically he's like i have to have a succession and and this is what this new ted and todd and ted want to do so he kind of has to let them do it but if you look at what charlie's doing with his own money and with daily journal which is more in line with what how warren thinks he hasn't changed a single share he's still you know 95 percent banks and uh and i think that sets up extremely well into the new cycle so um that was notable to see todd and ted have no influence over the daily journals uh corpse portfolio that's charlie munger's game and uh he's uh putting his money where his mouth is uh this is a very important chart and i posted it on the reads last saturday which was after the podcast and by the way for those of you listening to the podcast we're at minute 55. We'll get cut off at minute 60, but it's very easy. You just go to hedgefundtips.com and you'll click on the video cast. Fast forward the YouTube video to minute 60 and you'll pick up where you left off and you can watch the last five or 10 minutes. Uh, we've got a lot to cover here and you, you definitely want to take advantage. It's word for word the exact same thing. I'm recording it at the same time. Uh, and you get to look at some of these charts that you may have missed, so take advantage of that. Um, this is great because everyone says we're in a bubble because of valuations. We're at the beginning of a new cycle. And I love that they, uh, Bloomberg put this chart out because you get to these extreme bubble-like valuations both at the end of a bull market and at the beginning. And I've emphasized this on many podcasts that people are looking at trough earnings. But when you go back to trend earnings, you know, when earnings are zero, the multiple or two cents, your multiple could be, you know, a thousand times earnings because your earnings are two cents because you threw in the kitchen sink and you wrote everything down in the middle of the recession. But when they normalize back to $2 a share, that multiple goes down from a thousand times quote unquote earnings, which were one or two cents back to 20 times or 15 times. So people are misled by saying, oh my gosh, the, um, the, the multiple on small caps is crazy. It's a bubble. No, it's that they haven't had earnings. So they kitchen sinked it. The earnings were low. Therefore, the multiple looks high. Once the kitchen sink is in, they revert back to trend earnings, which is the long-term trend. And then the multiple just collapses and people are like, whoa, these are reasonable. Oh, and by the way, in a new business cycle, not only do they revert back to trend, they actually get above trend and then the multiple has to catch up and then they get re-rated and all those beautiful, benevolent, as the tech folks on the West Coast would say, the flywheel kicks in and... Um, and that's what you get. So so don't get misled by saying the multiple is this or the multiple is that. That is normal both at the end and at the beginning. We're at the beginning of a new cycle. It happened in 2009 and it's happening now. And we're going to get the earnings are going to go back to trend. This red line is S&P earnings per share. See it troughed here just as it did in 2009. Then it gets back to trend. And what happens to the multiple? It collapses and the multiple's going to collapse, and we've got lower rates than we've ever had for the time being. Certainly the short end will stay pinned for the next couple of years until, as they promised, inflation runs above 2% for a year. Let's see if they hold to their promise. I think uh, I think they'll take it up sooner than they expect, but nonetheless, it is what it is for right now, and that's an important chart to understand. Uh, macro charts put this out. 
It's something that he calls the daily sentiment, 50-day moving average. It just shows that when it gets this elevated for this long, you have a tendency to correct a little bit um, the last few times. And we're up at those levels again. So maybe we'll correct. You can correct sideways in time or you can correct in price. Don't underestimate the, the impact of $10 trillion or what will be close to $10 trillion to solve a $750 billion. You don't want to get too cute shorting in this type of market. It's a tidal wave of liquidity. It's just an opportunity where if we do get some weakness, you get one last chance to load up on cyclicals that you may have missed in the last six months. That's that's really all that is pointing to. And if you want to get super cute, you know, if you've had some of these stocks that have run like crazy uh, that are trading at super high multiples with no earnings, like new IPOs and that, maybe maybe you can lighten up on some of the speculative frothy stuff. But the business, the long-term durable businesses with moats load up for the long-term. Okay, on to the article of the week. Uh, this was the Amazing Grace Stock Market and Sentiment Results. I was, uh, you know, I thought the inauguration was great. I think it was amazing. I, I had my daughters watch uh, Kamala Harris. I said, you know, this is evidence that you can do anything, if not better, than.